regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. So Datacast, today I'm on the live with Sunanda Kuduvayu Patasarati, who is an Associate Director of Data Science at Wayfair, where she leads a team of data scientists and engineers to build machine learning solutions that lead to a better shopping experience for all Wayfair customers. Prior to this, she was leading data science innovation R&D projects at the Atex startup Datasu. Through her career in data science, she has enjoyed bringing quantitative definition and clarity to unworthy strategic business questions that had led to multiple high revenue products. So, uh, Sunanda, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. So, let's start, start our, our conversation talking about your education. I saw that you have a master's degree in physics from IIT Madras back in India. So, can you discuss your uh, master? Absolutely. Uh, physics. Uh, was and continues to be one of my first loves. So I did my bachelor's in physics and followed it up with a master's from one of the top tier institutes in India, where it gave me pretty in-depth knowledge in physics. And for my master's thesis, uh, I basically worked on supersymmetric theory, which is a abstract theory in physics, in theoretical physics. So it was a two-year course. I it was extremely enjoyable because it gave you a good overview and uh, detailed knowledge about all the different areas of physics spanning from classical mechanics to quantum and uh, further. I see. And um, I saw that uh, after that, you decided to go to um, the U.S. to pursue a PhD in condensed matter and material physics at Purdue University. So Mm -hmm. what is your main motivation for, for this decision? Yeah, so as I mentioned, uh, I was very much interested in furthering my knowledge in physics. And after a master's, the natural progression that I was thinking about was uh, a PhD because I was interested in research and digging deeper. And particularly, I was interested in, uh, since I'd done a theoretical uh, research work in my master's, I wanted to actually switch and try more of an experimental physics. While reading up on various things, the whole field of spin transport was very attractive because that is that was very practical to me. That is one of the branches of physics that leads to improvements in things like chips, for example. So I wanted to learn and do more around experimental physics and see how that will go. So that was, and as I was researching it, one of the leading upcoming professors was at Purdue doing some very interesting research that aligned with my interests. So that sort of led to my move here to the U.S. to pursue my PhD in physics. 
For sure. So you talk about you know your interest in ex experimental physics. So can you describe your PhD work in more detail? Yeah. So I was researching in the field called spoon transport. So that is basically what we talk about in quantum computers, right? So how do I figure out how to store information in the spin of an electron or a hole, which is opposite of an electron, instead of charge? So currently all chips are made using charge of an electron and we store information via that and manipulate information. And spin transport is around studying the fundamentals around how I can store information in spin because that's what leads to interesting things like quantum computing where you can have multiple layers of information encrusted within a single electron state. So my thesis was around understanding specific subset called holes in uh, these crystals called gallium arsenide which are actually the absence of an electron, which is a funny phenomenon in physics. Uh, but essentially, they have very interesting properties, and I was trying to understand dissipation of information um, and generally how can I manipulate spin of uh, electrons and holes in these systems. That's really cool. So I'm not too familiar with uh, research in physics, but uh, do you... Uh, present your work at a conference or you know share it with like um, other committees so how that uh, how that process work for you oh yeah um so we have a typical like any other field there are some uh, top journals that you typically publish in so i have two or three publications in uh, prl which is physical review letters and nature physics mm -hmm. and then you also there is this yearly big event conference, a prestigious conference uh, organized by Association for American Physical Society. I presented in those every year during my PhD. So it's uh, in physics, unlike I would say in computer science, a lot of it are journal publications. Mm -hmm. Conferences are just places where you present after you have published your work. After you finishing your PhD work, you decided to accept a material science postdoc fellowship at Princeton University where you worked for three years. Can you talk about this phase of your career? Towards the end of my PhD, I was, um, I, I was getting more and more interested in this field called quantum materials. And I was wanting to explore uh, further in that field and ex also explore how I would like an academic uh, career. So I was offered this fellowship at Princeton with one of the top leading scientists there, Jason Peta and uh, Professor Ong. Uh, Professor Ong happens to be one of the leaders in superconductivity and things like that. So that was like too good an opportunity for me to pass by. So I accepted it. Uh, I went there, uh, worked with uh, both these professors for three years in the field of quantum materials, which are these funny materials which can be um, they are called quantum insulators, actually. They are insulators in their bulk, meaning insulators are things that don't conduct electricity. So when you pass, try to pass electricity to the bulk of the material, they would act like an insulator, mm -hmm. but they could conduct on their surface. And they could conduct dissipationless, meaning you would barely lose any of the uh, electricity that you're conducting as you would normally do in a metal. All that dependent on being able to, again, tap the spin state of the surface uh, 
surface states. So I was looking into the fundamental research of how what, how do these surface states form. And actually, um, I think a year back or two years back, the theory guys who had actually proposed the existence of these surface states won the Nobel Prize. So it was an exciting phase for us in physics where we were trying to prove some of the theories that had been put forth in theoretical physics via experiments. And I was like in the thick of that research. That's really uh, fascinating. Can, can you um, talk more about the application aspect of like these quantum insulators? Like what? Yeah. Mm, yeah, so they also fall within this quantum computer kind of application. So imagine the resource you could develop if you can only tap into these surface states, right? So these surface states are like superconductors in the sense that you can pass electricity through them without any much energy loss. But a lot of being able to do that depends on being able to tap into these unique surface states, which are very uh, fragile. They exist only in certain conditions. So obviously, these are things that are cooled down to way cold temperatures close to absolute zero, and you study these states. But the research has progressed since those days, and we are progressively trying to capture these states in more room temperature systems. And if we can, if we come actually fully succeed, then you can be making chips out of these states. And you could, uh, again, like in quantum computer, you could be uh, encoding a lot of information in a very small chip. And they would, and the added benefit is they would be dissipationless. So it's like another way of approaching the quantum computer problem. What do you think was some of the most valuable lessons that you learned during your postdoc time? That's an interesting question. So uh, keeping it in relation to my current career, right, I would say a postdoc is one of, in experimental physics, is, is pretty brutal <laughs> in the sense that you don't have, you're just going behind an idea without clear um, instructions on, okay, this is the way I need to go and this is the answer I will find. You don't know what you will find. Your experiments will fail. It's a lot about patience and a lot about learning from your mistakes very quickly and keeping at it, like persistence. To me, those are sort of the things that are well adaptable to the data science universe because it's similar in data science where you are given a pretty ambiguous question and you have to somehow figure out whether you can answer that ambiguous question with data. It's in physics, it's more around, you have an ambiguous question, okay, do these surface states exist? If so, how do I find that, right? That's such a broad question, but then you start thinking about, okay, within the system, how do how can I design an experiment and how can I understand the measurements that are coming out of that experiment to prove or disprove a theory that's stood for many centuries? So, to me, those are the lessons of being uh, able to crystallize an ambiguous question into fundamental parts. Uh, those are the kind of experiences and lessons that you learn in experimental physics. Absolutely. During your last year of your postdoc at Princeton, you decided to um, get a certificate of professional achievement in data science at Columbia. At that time, what attracted you from this new field? And, you know, why did you make this transition from, you know, physics into, into data science? So, towards the end of my postdoc, the typical fork in the road was presented to me, like most PhD students, right? So, it was either a um, career in academia or uh, a career in industry. Industry, the 
chip building companies, for example, who would be interested in uh, our kind of profiles. And those profiles tended to be more engineering oriented and less fundamental research oriented, uh, which was not uh, something that I completely enjoyed. So, and the academia uh, route, the kind of academia, academic career that I had envisioned for myself mm -hmm. when I had started my PhD and what academia in the U.S. had turned into by the time I finished my postdoc was completely different. So these days in academia, at least it's getting better now, but during the phase when I was just finishing up postdoc, it was harder and harder to get government funding on some of these fundamental research topics. So I could see my peers spending a lot more of their time writing grant uh, and um, doing teaching rather than doing what they really wanted to, which was spending time in the lab. So I was at this crossroads where I wasn't sure uh, whether I'm going to enjoy either of these options that was presented. And that's when the buzz around data science was slowly starting up. And I was curious as to what this was, because from what I could tell, a lot of the technical background uh, skill training that we had received in physics or math was useful in data science. So I actually ended up doing some pro bono consulting work for a few startup and uh, nonprofit organizations. And it turned out that whatever I knew from my training in physics and math was very useful for these companies. It was, again, the same problem as I had presented before, where they had a question and they wanted some quantitative way of answering it. And it was all uh, techniques we actually use in physics but we typically call it with different names, you know, like the algorithms would have a very uh, physics name to it, whereas computer science would be calling it in a different name. So I was, as I was learning more and more about it, I realized that I knew all the details of how to solve it. I just didn't know the nomenclature of it that was, uh, that people uh, were referring it with in the popular data science world. So that's sort of what motivated me to sit in for these classes at Columbia. I was like, okay, let me actually see whether I really know this stuff already. And it's just a matter of me tuning my language so that people understood what I was talking about. And that's what it turned out to be. So we went through the typical fundamental courses of machine learning and uh, algorithms, complexity, things like that, which were things that I had already touched upon over my master's and PhD in different shapes and forms. And the fundamental math was anyway there because I had my physics training. So it was more for me to get up to speed on how computer scientists and statisticians called some of these concepts that I was familiar by on my physics. Um, and that was very useful because when I eventually started looking for jobs in data science, I was able to paraphrase what I had done in physics in the language that people in the data science universe new right and which is important when you are adapting something from a field to a new field so that's sort of what led to my transition to data science and i i realized that what i really enjoy is this get an ambiguous question break it down into its parts, and solve those problems which i get to do in data science without all the other uh things that i would have had to do if i had stuck in an academic career in physics or industry career in physics so that's why i chose it and i uh, family also brought me to boston at that time and it was perfect because 
I got this offer from the startup here at DataZoo. Going back to your your point about algorithms, code in computer science, other you know some of the stuff you, you already done, you know during your time studying physics, uh, you just under a different terminology. Can you give some examples so so you know people can you know understand you know um, how does the same sort of approach is is uh, is phrased differently across these fields? Um, so for example, uh, Monte Carlo. Uh, simulations right it's a standard technique in computer science and in data science and things like that we come across that in uh condensed matter physics and icing model and things like that so we we hear we know it as icing model or we will know it as that particular physical concept model but the techniques behind the scenes is actually monte carlo it's all those those kind of mathematical techniques which get called Assess in computer science, right? You you call Monte Carlo method as a Monte Carlo random walk mm-hmm. uh, method, whereas in physics we would have done it, but we we will like immediately call it as a icing chain model or things like that. So that's what I mean when there are these parallelisms where the fundamental techniques are the same, mm-hmm. but because it gets up applied into a specific uh, field in physics. As I mentioned, icing icing chain is a model that is used to explain solid formation, right? Like how various bonds are formed and how does things move across different elements in a crystal. That's what icing model is about, based on the scientists who discovered it, who applied that technique in for that field. So those were sort of that is a classic example that comes to mind immediately where it, it was, I was like, yeah, I've done this multiple times in, throughout physics. It's just that I have not realized that it's the same thing that we are talking about here. It's just like the importance of like having that um, first principle thinking, exactly. have, have a broad range of um, two set, right, mental models, like have, have that two set, and um, you can essentially personalize that for, for the specific domains and, and then exactly. see, see what be best apply for for the problem at hand. And you mentioned the fact that during your um, some of the classes that you took at Columbia, you were um, you trying to get up to speed with some of the you know the, the stuff that uh, computer scientists and statisticians are familiar with. From your experience, what was you know like some of the best uh, courses um, that you took you know during your time at Columbia that helped you a lot to to make that transition um, easier. Yeah, so I would say like all of them were very good, like the machine learning, we had machine learning, we had statistics, and uh, we had algorithms and complexity. They were all interesting in the sense, they they were more like, ah, yeah, I know this math, now I know how to call it differently. Uh, But to me, the most interesting course, or like the newish course that I took was data visualization. Um, which I think is not something, at least this kind of visualization is not what we do in physics. Mm-hmm. So that was something new and that was actually very helpful for me later on because I realized the importance of visualization, especially in a business environment um, where you can do the most complex math behind the scenes, but then when you visualize it to somebody, you want to show it in a way that they can wrap their heads around, like the CMOs and see. CT, not CTOs, but like you know, C-suite executive people who want to make decisions based on data, they don't have the time to sit and understand every single detail of your model. But if you present it in a visualized form uh, that they know how things play together, they can actually add a little bit of value and take important decisions based on your work. 
So to me, the data visualization course was fantastic because it was also run as a more hands-on course, meaning we did things like we used to read a whole ton of data visualization blogs mm -hmm. um, and sort of critique visualizations that were uh, floating around in the on the web. And each person would basically, each week we would come with, hey, I found this visualization. I think these, it has all these great elements of visualization in it, but these are all the ways in which I would improve it and we would work on it and improve it. This led to like being able to on the go critically uh, adapt your visualization um, strategy as you evolved as a data scientist, which I think helped me a whole ton and continues to help me in my career. That's really interesting. Yeah, this is a very important point. You know, when you emphasize on on um, communicating your results to to non non technical stakeholder, right? And yeah, data visualization, obviously, you know, the best way to 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 do so. Yeah. Um, it's just one quick note, though. I assume that you know, in terms of the the actual programming programming language itself, it's probably different from you know, your time as PhD, right? So, uh, would you have to like learn? Python or R from scratch or you know how that process for you? Yeah, that is actually a good point. So I had in physics the funny thing is you code in all kinds of languages. I have even coded in Fortran way back because there was some legacy code that nobody wanted to change. I had training in C plus mm plus, -hmm. but not in Python through my physics career. So when I moved completely to data science, that was something that I picked up uh, along the way. To be honest, I, I actually, once you have any one particular programming language experience and you know more about the concepts like object-oriented programming or like how things work, it becomes pretty easy to adapt to any other. It, to me, it's all just syntax after that. Mm -hmm. It's one kind of a language versus another. So yeah, I definitely learned Python and R from scratch, but to me, it was not a big hurdle because I already had the basic concepts around programming and algorithm beforehand. For sure. Can you elaborate more on your job search process um, after your, you finish your term at, um, at Princeton, Columbia? Like, um, you know, what was your um, strategy? You know, were you looking for a particular size of company? Or like, how did you, you know, fr frame yourself, go for a data science position, you know? Yeah. Uh, so for me, transitioning from like physics, which I had mentioned to you earlier that I really, really love, right? I mean, I pretty much all my life until then, I was doing only physics. So it was very important for me to find a job where I would really love working on a problem and wanted to be around people who were like equally interested in the scientific aspect of that problem, right? So I was generally uh, sending out resumes and like talking to people around, these are my interests, this is my training, and this is how I will want to be part of a team that is thinking about problems in a scientific way. And when I interviewed at Data Zoo, I really sort of completely enjoyed the interviewing process because it was clearly with folks who had a similar scientific bent of mind. Uh, the cases we worked through, it was more like I was discussing with somebody at my postdoc lab, uh, solving a puzzle kind of a thing. And I thoroughly enjoyed it, which sort of why I accepted the position. And I was also keen on being, having the exposure into the business, right? Mm -hmm. For me, it was very important when I do the transition that I actually understood how data science gets applied in a business and how does it turn, how does 
how do decisions get made based on the algorithms that I create? So that also veered me towards Data Zoo, which, which was the right-sized company for me, where I could have, I was working with the co-founder, so I had the visibility and understanding of how what I will work on gets used by the executive team. So all that helped me make my decision. Absolutely. So Data Zoo is a startup that focuses on um, advertising, right? Uh, advertising yeah. tech. During your your three years working as a data scientist, then what were some of the interesting projects that you work on and how did your career progress? I worked on two interesting projects that I am really passionate about still at Data Zoo. One was around, so in advertising and marketing, there's this common problem or concept of attribution, right? So there are companies which show ads and then we as consumers look at these ads and then we go and make our purchases. Now, companies pay a whole ton of money to have their ads put out on TV or your web pages that you visit or any other place that you see, right? It's a huge, it's one of the biggest budgeting dollars that go in any company's portfolio. So for them, it's very important to understand when a customer buys something, which of the ads that they showed actually influenced them to buy that product, right? Or did none of them actually influence? Because that is how they decide how much budget they allocate each of the marketing channels. This is called attribution in advertising. And for the longest time, and still many companies go behind the theory of what's called last touch attribution. So whatever was the last advertisement you saw, they assume that is the one that pushed you to buy the product that you bought immediately after that. This obviously, as you can imagine, has a big problem because a lot of people will end up, if they're buying online, will end up buying things by searching for it, right? So you search for it and then obviously the search ad will come first. And you will end up buying it because you have anyway made up your mind to buy it. But wrongly, the search ad will get attributed with the credit for the purchase because, you know, that's what ends up occurring at the last uh, touch point of the customer. So how do you then figure out the right way to assign credit to each of the ads that a customer has seen before they buy a product? This is an interesting problem. There are many different Uh, There's actually a lot of papers published around it. You can think about it as a probabilistic graph model. You can think about it as, you know, a typical uh, hierarchical model where a person is jumping through one state to another state. There are simple, like, equal attribution. You just say, I'm going to split the credit equally across all touch points, multiple different ways. So I was solving this specifically uh, for the data zoo ecosystem and understanding what works and what doesn't work because obviously a lot of the success of such an algorithm depends on the details of that particular universe you're tackling. So that was an interesting problem I, we worked on. Another interesting one is what's called marketing mix modeling. So understanding the causal effect of ROI of an ad, right? So how much should I allocate budget to a specific channel or ad such that it uh, gets the maximum ROI out of it. Um, what should that amount be? So if you typically draw the ad spend versus uh, revenue generated, it's a typical ROI curve and you want to find the sweet spot in the curve. So we were developing some proprietary interesting causal models to help 
answer that question. So, all very interesting problems uh, that are very relevant in the advertising industry, but can have very deep scientific uh, thought process behind it. And curious, you know, for for these projects that you just mentioned, if you have to like talk about, you know, kind of like the the workflow of, of uh, mm-hmm. you know as a data scientist, how much your time is spent on doing data analysis and how much your time is doing modeling and I guess I'm so dependent on the type problem, but like, you know, how much of it is like, you know, doing stuff with A-B testing since that's yeah. pretty common in, in marketing and how much of that is more on, I guess it's just simple, you know, algorithmic performance, you know, like accuracy yeah. or that. Yeah, 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 that's a great question. I would say both in DataZoo and now at Wayfair, A-B testing or like actual live testing of algorithms is a big, big piece because no matter how good your AUC numbers or NDCG numbers are offline, they don't really, depending on the problem, of course, they don't really signify an online performance. Uh, I can specifically uh, jump into the Wayfair universe where we work on recommender systems now. And the fundamental challenge with recommender systems is offline uh, evaluation of those systems is very, very hard. Uh, There's no way to tell what would you have clicked on if I had shown you this recommendation, right? Because that never happened and I have no idea what's going to happen. So we definitely rely a whole ton on A-B testing or multi-arm banded testing, those kind of live testing to actually get feedback on our algorithmic performances. At DataZoo, my time was split, I would say, equally within actual algorithmic conception and design and then working with engineers to productionize it and then uh, experimental design of actually how do we set it up such that we can run tests and learn from it. And also the aspect of interfacing with clients so that that created the full life cycle of a product. So when we interfaced and presented our algorithms or results to the clients, it was very valuable because we, we were able to hear their how marketers are thinking about the problem, right? It's not about AUC or anything. They care about, hey, next month I need to make a budget. Where do I put my dollars, mm-hmm. right? So hearing that was very grounding because that that grounded the way in which we were thinking about algorithms. And then conceptualizing the algorithm, t- productionizing it with engineers, testing it, and taking back the results to clients, getting their feedback, sort of, was how we innovated and kept the innovation cycle alive. So to me, all those elements are equally important. Ideally, it's it's not like in a day you would do all of it, but overall, if you look and aggregate, the time is equally spent in these uh, buckets. And um, yeah, so how did your career progress? Uh, I know that you started out as an uh, individual contributor and then uh, later on you move on to a um, more leadership position uh, at DataSoup. Mm-hmm. Can you... Uh, Talk more about that. Yeah, so I started off as an IC working on one of these projects that I mentioned. As things progressed and like my appetite grew, I was able to take on more and more uh, projects and sort of manage and lead few R&D projects at DataZoo. So through by the end of third year, I was leading some innovation projects at DataZoo, which is sort of what set me up for my transition to Wayfair as an associate director where I had had an opportunity to think through roadmaps and strategic vision for a certain set of problems, right? That is sort of how career progressed and mm-hmm. um, and then I moved on to Wayfair. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, so 
So for the audience who are not familiar with Wayfair, can you give just a very brief background about the company and you know just state the reasons why you decided to, to work there? Yeah, Wayfair is actually an online e-commerce company uh, for home furnishings. It was started actually by two engineers where it was originally split across as multiple stores, online stores for specific needs of the home. And now it's uh, all within the brand of Wayfair. And my transition to Wayfair happened because they, they were looking for somebody who can come in and start a team and uh, grow it and lead it around uh, storefront and recommendations, which is what I do now, which was very exciting at that point because basically gave me an opportunity to try a new field, which is e-commerce, and sort of be, instead of a software as a service where we were working on products for clients, this would be internal. So that is also a different change. Mm -hmm. So I thought that would be, after three years, I wanted to try something else new. So that's what motivated me. One of the key things that I was uh, wary about and wanted to make sure was maintained was, even though Wayfair was a much bigger company, I was very keen on having that same exposure to a product life cycle and the ability to bring impact, right? So no matter how, whatever cool algorithms you work on, if you're not making a product out of it, it's not that much fun, at least for me. So in, from talking again, the interview process, and I was talking to different team members and senior leadership at Wayfair, it was very clear they were still operating as a startup. Uh, culture, meaning they, they were open to experimentation, they were uh, very fast with their iterate, product iteration, and they were willing to try new things and lend the infrastructure that would be needed to help us create some interesting products out of machine learning and data science. So that was sort of what led to my transition to Wayfair. As the Associate Director of Data Science, what, was some, what are some of your major responsibilities within the Data Science Department? Yeah, um, so I lead the team that whose mandate is basically to build algorithms that uh, create recommender system for uh, Wayfair's online websites. Um, so when I say recommender systems, product recommendations is a big part of it, but we also do other kinds of recommendations. Anything that appears on the web page, we are thinking about how to optimize it and personalize it for a customer. So whether you see a certain kind of banner with a certain kind of message, or whether you see a subset of filters and options, or you start seeing dynamic uh, filters as you navigate through the pages so that your experience while shopping for home furnishings at Wayfair mm -hmm. continues to be very rewarding and you get to what you want to in a seamless way. That is sort of what drives us day in and day out. So we create algorithms me and my team sort of think through these problems, come up with algorithms, and we work with our engineering teams to productionize it. And then, as I mentioned before, set up live testing and then get feedback and continue on the cycle. So as an associate director, director, I lead the conceptualization and uh, strategy around how do we prioritize these different projects we have for the team. I also grew the team from three members to now close to 20, and also actively participate with other data science leadership members on how, uh, like the role of data science within Wayfair, how can us, how can we be more uh, impactful for the organization? For people 
you know, or like for, you know, data scientists uh -huh. who want to make a transition from an uh, IC to a leader within the organization, what would be your advice for them? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say like one of the key things to remember as you grow into a managerial or leadership role is not letting go of your, that man, the manager doers are the kind of managers who are extremely well respected and have a strong career path in my head. Uh, so even though we are leading a team, at no point do we uh, move away from the implementation and the realities and the challenges that we faced when we were uh, pure ICs, right? So to this day, I stay very close to the actual implementation details of all the algorithms in my team. I keep abreast of all the technologies that are there so that I can help my team uh, and direct them towards newer technologies. Because the last thing that anybody needs is a manager who is so far removed from the reality of the universe and they don't understand uh, when their team member says, hey, this is going to take me three days to implement in Spark and two days to implement in Python. And they have, the manager has no sense of what that involves, you know, like whether it truly is three days or not. So being very close to the nitty gritties of a problem is still important, I would say. Don't let go of that, even though you will have now more added responsibilities. Um, it just becomes a matter of how well you prioritize your time so that you can be doing more the strategic visioning and stay close to the uh, cool stuff. Absolutely, yeah. You mentioned that you your focus now at Wayfair is on uh, building product recommendation system. So I'm just curious, what are some of the R&D innovation in this sort of domain that your team at Wayfair is thinking of? Because, you know, like uh, recommendation system is pretty much uh, prevalent nowadays in, in the majority of like, you know, consumer yeah. tech company. Uh, back did back all the way from the time with Netflix, you know, a couple of years ago, and now yeah. you know, like you know with Spotify and Amazon. So, given some of the recent algorithmic development from from the field, you know, what sort of stuff that uh, that you guys are looking to implement it at Wayfair, and how is that you know uh, being put into practice? Yeah, so that you you rightfully pointed out there's like a lot of um, interesting innovations happening within the recommendation system universe, which we are. We, we sort of are at the cutting edge of it, implementing some uh, very interesting neural net platforms that serve recommendations in real time. We're also <clears throat> exploring uh, reinforcement learning based explore exploit kind of recommendations, which are hard to do in real time, which we are moving ahead with. I will specifically talk about, because you mentioned R&D, I will talk about one of the other common challenges that all recommendation systems face and I mentioned briefly before, which is the um, challenge of offline evaluation, right? Mm -hmm. um, especially for recommender systems, no amount of the standard AUC or NDCG is very helpful in helping us understand how well a recommender system will do in the wild, in the real wild, right? Mm -hmm. So we are innovating and thinking about some interesting new ideas around how can we build a offline evaluation uh, framework that has an element of both like live testing along with adjustments to our offline data that will help us evaluate these recommendation systems much more accurately 
before we actually set up for live testing. Because as you can imagine, live testing always comes with a certain cost, right? Uh, you want to be as close to the algorithm that does best instead of trying like 100,000 algorithms and wasting a whole ton of money for the business. So we are, um, obviously I can't go into too much details here, but we are uh, thinking about a lot around this problem. There's a lot of interesting research from a lot of academic uh, collaborators too. So we are chatting with them and then thinking through how to how to solve this problem because it's not an easy one. Um, given your experience working for a startup and now as an established company, you know, can you comment on the differences between these two working environments? I would say the there are um, even though Wayfair is big, one of the advantages of Wayfair is it still behaves like a startup when it comes to uh, product life cycle and how fast we can um, make an impact. So I, it wouldn't be fair for me to talk about the differences completely, but one of the in in a startup environment it's sort of like it's a lot of it is around getting things quickly um so obviously there's not uh, we don't have enough time to do so and think about scalability of infrastructure or how do i make a solution that is actually deployable and stable over a long time you don't have time to think about all those things you have to get something out the door like tomorrow um, whereas when you are in a medium-sized company like Wayfair, you actually have all those things to think about. The scale is much bigger. You, you, when you're thinking about solutions, even if it's an MVP, you already want to start thinking about how, how much of this code am I, do I have to rip out if I have to convert this into a fully stabilized, deployable product, right? Um, last but not least, how would you describe the tech and data community in Boston? I'm very active in the local tech and um, data science community here at Boston. One of the biggest advantages we have, of course, is some of the uh, leading institutions of the country are here, mm-hmm. which also make a lot of startup power and interesting companies that want to start here. Um, it's it's a very active community and a very uh, collaborative and true community. I co-organized my is one of the oldest data science meetups here called the Data Scientist. And just from the turnaround for the events, you can see how much the community is close and um, is very much interested in bringing talent to the place, encouraging um, free flow of ideas between companies. Lots of companies here, we always have where we think there might be operators or slightly different verticals. Uh, we share a lot of talks amongst companies. We bring expertise and like consult and talk, talk openly about techniques and latest uh, innovation fields. So going on in Boston, a lot of government, government comes of this kind of, of ideas, which helps uh, build a very diverse. Awesome! Awesome. Um, so, Shunanda, at this time of our conversation, I want to move on to the final segment in which I'm going to ask you three quick five questions and you can just give your uh, quick uh, one-line answer and so the people can, can get that tactical advice, okay? Um, uh-huh. The first one is, what are some of the companies which are doing exceptional data science work that, that you really admire? Um, I, I follow Stitch Fix, Pinterest, the uh 
people. These are some companies that I usually watch out for uh, doing some interesting stuff. I see, yeah. Uh, and then the same question is, what is one book that you would recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset? Um, whether it really matters asking for what that I was thinking this morning, Errol Dweck books on the growth set necessarily analytical, but it sort of uh, teaches about the principle technology where if you had a mindset where that uh, compete built by learning, it puts you in better position through critically. Yeah, the great recommendation, you know, yeah. Um, the, 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 the big, um, I guess, you know, requirement for, for anyone who want to learn new things is to having that, that grow mindset, yeah. right? You know, really uh, being aware that you know, you're capable of, of growing and learning new materials. Exactly. So, uh, exactly. yeah, you know, definitely a, a good choice for people who, who want to, to get into this field. And then the last question of our chat is that uh, imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? I would think along the lines of get and keep your hands dirty, which is towards the last point I was making. There's no data science for not coding or trying new things keeps coming. So to me, any true, it is no matter they're constantly uh, trying out that are out and learning uh brilliant so sinana that's the end of our conversation i really appreciate you know spending your time with me this morning uh sharing your your um you know uh, work experience you know your um academic uh career studying physics your time uh doing postdoc at princeton your you know um transition from from physics to data science your work at um data Sioux and wayfair as well as you know uh, various um, advice for people who want to um, move into a leadership position within a company and you know to uh, tackle interesting industrial problems that data science can solve in this uh, really exciting space so I'm sure that audience is going to learn a lot and you know um, I definitely can include that all that information in the show notes so they can learn more about you and can reach out with some further questions if needed thank you so much Fernanda thank you so much it was a pleasure Well, that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.